0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon. I'm here with Audrey Waters. And we're doing our first of what we hope will be a weekly podcast series on Education Stories of the Week. Audrey, thanks for doing this with me.
1: Thanks, I'm thrilled.
0: Me too. So, uh, Audrey, your blog is Hack Education. And uh, you seem to post about once a day. Is that right?
1: I do. I try. Um, I set my uh, sites higher at one point for posting more often, but there is a lot of um, there are a lot of stories out there, anyways, and I think it's overwhelming. So once a day is the goal.
0: Well, I'm impressed with the the detail in those particular posts. And then once a week, you do a roundup, which is a roundup of news around education technology.
1: Um. And education, technology, and then sort of, I mean, I try very hard to make hack education not about policy and politics, um, legal battles, uh, but, but, it, but it's not easy to separate them. And so I, the, there does tend to be, you know, stories when there are important, you know, bills, um, bills in front of Congress, for example, um, I, do, I do include those as well.
0: Yeah, I'm laughing because this week your first section heading is politics and policies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Indeed.
0: <laughs> okay, so, well, really big news uh, this last week was Steve Jobs passing. Yes. And it's always hard when someone passes away. Um, but I'm curious, with all of the sort of adulation of Steve, um, are there other views of his legacy, kind of the privacy, the closed, non-open source um, um, pattern with, with Steve or his behavior as a boss, are those coming out in the stories at all?
1: I've seen, I've seen some of those stories and I've actually seen, I mean, to back up a bit, I think that one of the fascinating things about Apple as a company, and I can't really think of any other technology company like this, are the number of people who, um, I mean, I don't, like to use this word lightly but really worship Apple and so I think that Apple has a lot of very 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 strong and vocal fans um, and although there have been a few critiques of some of some of Steve Jobs legacy, overwhelmingly people have been um, not just sort of not just moved or you know by his by his passing but sort of deeply deeply distraught um, you know sort of John Lennon like, um, memorials and, and crying outside Apple stores. Um, so it's it's bizarre.
0: Uh, well, as the parent of a child who actually once cried when I took away her iPod, I don't <laughs> find that too bizarre. And I mean, I think there was an emotional connection. I think that's part of Steve's brilliance was the emotional connection that you made with the products.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I say that actually when when... Uh, I was I was working and I when I saw the the tweet come up for the breaking news tweet that uh, Steve Jobs had died i I, I cried. Um, and I have to say I, I wonder if it is not to sort of psychoanalyze, but it is something um, many of us have very long relationships with Apple products. Um, and I, I couldn't the last time I think I cried when a public figure like this died was when Jim Henson died, um, who had a similar sort of Really profound impact on me as a as a young girl, um, so I mean I understand it, but I, I I think it's it's still it's not something that we see uh, very often in the in the technology world.
0: So you looked at this from the perspective of success in ed tech. What was your take?
1: Well, I think that you know I think that Apple has um, Apple has Apple targeted the education market early. Um, I think that if you look at a lot of the products that, that Apple and Steve Jobs, even when he wasn't at Apple, built, they were computers. Um, that he, you know, he really had this idea of putting computers in the hands of students and teachers and schools, because that's who needed to have computing power. Um, Apple. I think Apple sort of wooed that market early. The Apple Distinguished Educator program was sort of a very early attempt to get sort of these brand evangelists out there. Um, But I think at some point, and interestingly enough, it is, I think, the point where most technology folks would point to Apple becoming incredibly innovative in a new direction around 2001-ish when the iPod came out. Apple sort of stepped away from the education world um, and so it's just it's just interesting to think about a- Apple's most innovative moments um, were they were they about at ed- building educational computers I mean now we say we look at the iPad and say sure um, it's a it's a great mobile tool um, but I, I think that the, it's sort of a mixed bag um, I'm you know I think a lot of teachers love Apple products I, I use Apple products but I'm not sure um, I'm not sure that the legacy is as is, is as sort of um, as positive as some folks would have would have you believe
0: so there may be an interesting connection here between building really good consumer products that can get pulled into education by virtue of their value
1: yeah I mean and I think that that's I think that that's actually something that's very exciting right now to think about um, to think about um, education technology as, as actually tapping into the, to those consumer products. Because if there's, you know, I think that one thing that ed tech has suffered from historically is that the tech has been pretty lousy. Um, and so I think it's really powerful to suddenly have um, teachers and, and students recognize that sort of these old computers that are um, in their classrooms and the old Programs that they use, you know, radio buttons and drop-down menus. That circa, you know, circa 1998. I think it's powerful for them to be like, "Wow, this is this isn't that great. I have I have nicer apps on my iPhone." Um, and so I think that, I hope that that's going to drive forward a lot of a lot of pressure for education uh, technology companies to sort of step it up in terms of the software uh, and the hardware that they build.
0: So you also wrote about Google and their, uh, what they're doing for schools with YouTube. Your writing was good, but uh, I'm so bored of Google. <laughs> 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 and, and, and especially of a, a way of providing videos that don't allow for any commenting. Um, and and from, a, from a company who still reminds me that their service requires that you be 18 years old, knowing yes. that I'm violating that with my own children. Is there anything we need to know about that story that's critical right now?
1: I thought that the one thing that I found very interesting um, about about that story was just that you know one of the first one of the first stories well, when I wrote for ReadWrite Web, one of the first stories that I broke as a journalist there um, was that that Google had created this sort of secure search, and they had put it on the same um, that it was that it was going to cause issues with schools' web filtering. And um, you know, g- schools were going to be faced with uh, with problems that if they blocked secure search, and really they would have to, since the whole point of secure search is that you can't create logs of what people are doing, you can't monitor their searches. Um, the, the Google, you know, Google was going to find itself in a world of hurt because it hadn't designed a product, um, and it hadn't designed a product with schools in mind. All the while. Trying to woo schools with its you know, Google Apps for education. So I thought I, this move to this move that they did this week to to sort of redirect all YouTube links to a special, a special portal with no comments. Um, we've, you know, they, they say they're filtering out, so it's only educational related material. It's sort of this interesting work around the filters. Um, which are a huge, I mean, they're a huge issue for, for students and teachers um, at schools. So it's, I, I thought it was just interesting that Google is sort of paying attention to filtering, um, to filtering on schools.
0: Are there chinks in Google's armor right now? There was a blonde post from a, an employee about um, Google not operating Um Google Plus as a platform, and and I've had a terrible week this week because Google took over Feedburner, and then it's really sort of left it hanging out in the wind. We've, we've sort of seen Google as this company that could do no wrong. Is is that changing, or is this just sort of part of the ups and downs?
1: I I think that things are changing. I think that um, it's a you know I think that we're at this interesting point now where the rise of sort of social and this notion that um, you know, Google's approach to the world has always been very algorithmic. I mean, that's the beauty of what Larry and Sergey devised was an algorithm for search. And I think that they've approached most problems as engineers, um, applying that sort of mathematical algorithmic um, solution. And I think with the rise of Facebook and the rise of social networking, um many people are realizing that that math, that sort of mathematical approach doesn't necessarily, account for the human element and I don't know if it's sort of culturally or I, I don't think it's technologically I just think culturally sort of Google doesn't seem to Google doesn't seem to to get it Fascinating. They, perhaps they will um perhaps there is a mathematical <laughs> algorithm to to social interactions that that they will uncover um but it, I but they do seem to be hiccuping um I mean you know they had their quarterly call um I think the, earlier this week, and they have like, you know, fifty billion dollars in the bank. So I mean, they're okay to screw up a little bit, but but yeah, I do I do think Google seems to be slipping.
0: Having said all that, though, I, I do like Google Plus. Okay, so so uh, Gary Steger yes, had a lot to say about bring your own devices. I could I could uh, just hear real fuming in the background. <laughs> so what what what's Gary's big concern about the bring your own device? Are right?
1: Um, yeah. So Gary Gary made the argument that uh, the, the bring your bring your own device programs, which are something that more schools are more, more schools are looking into. Um, he he made the argument that this is going to sort of further the digital divide, and that by allowing students to bring any any technology they want to school, rather than schools providing them with technology. That we're really going to be sort of catering to the lowest common denominator, or you know, lowest technical denominator in the classroom. Um, in, in his words, the you know, the cell phone. Um, and so he found, you know, he found it to be sort of an abhorrent, um, sort of uh, mismanagement that sort of that schools were willing to sort of hand over this responsibility for providing hardware to parents um, to 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 provide their to provide their kids with with the hardware. Uh,
0: I, I felt like I was on both sides of that. I, I respect that argument and the concern. At the same time, I feel like schools will figure out how to address that. And in our school, I mean, I know the calculator is not a computer, but kids bring a variety of different calculators, and there's a sort of a bar for, for what would be an appropriate calculator. And my guess is we're rapidly approaching a place where the bar for a computing device is, is going to be pretty high, even for low end devices.
1: Yeah, I think so too, and I and I also think that, I mean, again, this is one of you know this is one of those areas in which, much like with Apple and the imp, in the influx of the consumer you know a consumer device, I think that there could be you know positive you know a positive uh, fallout from this sort of thing that, you know, it will mean that schools, for example, schools won't be able to you know. Uh, purchase software that only works on Apple Macintosh computers if, you know, if you have 30 students and half of them brought, you know, netbooks and someone's running on, um, you know, Linux and a couple half people have iPads. Um, I think that there are interesting ways in which it's going to change sort of uh, change a lot of things and perhaps for the better.
0: So that's a nice segue into uh, the, the announcements of low-cost tablet projects, um, which we don't know if they're Vapor or not. But uh, how realistic is it to think that we could have low-cost tablet computing? And is it any more realistic than the promises we had of $50 computers two years ago?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it is very much this sort of the one laptop per child um, uh, uh, gesture. But the, the interesting thing is that they are actually shipping. So this, the Akash device in India is, it's not vaporware, it is is—it is shipping. Um, it's a $35 Android tablet. I mean, it's its no iPad uh, by all means, but um, but it certainly seems to be, it's, you know, internet ready. Um, it doesn't have the multi-touch interface that an iPad does, but it has a touch screen. Um, it has a browser. It has 3G and Wi-Fi capability. Um, I... I posted that story on my Facebook um, account. One of my friends works at Rovio, and his first question was, "Does it play Angry Birds?" And I, I said, "I, I think so." <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: as a uh, you know, as a, a very happy Android tablet owner, I have the uh, Acer Iconia. Um, I, I am kind of intrigued at the degree to which there's still this perception that the iPad is somehow a significantly better device. Um, but uh, am I right in thinking that, the, that one of those projects is – that price point is being subsidized by the government?
1: Yes, that that – the, the it's, you know, the, the headlines, I think even my headline read the $35 tablet and that is because the Indian government has decided to to subsidize it, which, you know, to, to sort of bring this back to Gary's point I think is an interesting, it's a sort of an interesting difference. Um, in this country we're seeing a move to a bring your own device world um, and you know, in other parts of the world the government is making sure that, th- that every child does have access or, you know, ideally Um, every child will have access to an Internet-ready tablet.
0: I sat next to a gentleman from Amazon on a flight a couple of weeks ago, and in that discussion it occurred to me that the ability to put public domain books on a tablet-like device could in fact be the big win in the next few years versus trying to figure out how to use the tablets in a lot of other ways, that just having access to books could be a huge win.
1: There's a there's a, a company called World Reader, or a, not a company, I should say, a nonprofit organization, and that's actually what they're doing. They hand out Kindles um, uh, in parts of Africa uh, with you know open access, openly licensed books, and it's really this effort to help um, you know to help promote literacy around the world um, through. You know, you can't bring a library to a village, but you can put a library on a Kindle. um, And and that device is is a pretty powerful way. And I think that that's also the Indian government's um, rationale behind this as well. It's not, I mean, not to make fun of angry birds. It isn't so that, you know, everyone has access to, you know, uh, mobile gaming and things like that. It is so that everyone has access to, you know, to literacy, basic literacy.
0: Okay. Academic dishonesty. (laughs) Is <laughs> it really worse than it ever was and why?
1: I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this topic. Um, I, I think that we, you know, I think that it's, it's uh, you know, some of the statistics do indicate that students are cheating more than ever. Um, I think, you know, as, as um, any time there's a sort of a technological shift, we can point to the ease with which um, copy-paste works. For example, is that you know students uh, students are cheating more, um, but I think that there are a lot of other questions about the ways in which sort of um, the ways in which we're pressuring people to perform based on testing, the ways in which we're sort of de- designing uh, assignments in class that aren't really about critical or original thinking, um, that are about you know c- copy paste, um, um, and so what struck me was that I was when I I mean how I sort of de- Came upon that story was that I was uh, I found a website that offers ways to cheat at Khan Academy, which uh, it, sort of hilariously awful that um, this website that's supposed to provide ways to sort of anyone to learn anything that they want to already has you know legions of of people trying to game game the system.
0: I wasn't as bothered by that because I figure that kids end up doing that in games anyway, so that would just sort of be a natural behavior and that they would figure out that that wasn't helping them. But it was a curious story for me because um, what we saw in the financial crisis and what we've seen over the last couple of decades is a willingness, it feels like, in business increasingly to justify unethical behavior because of measurements that we know don't do a good job of motivating Right. But, but, but but we've seen the outcome of that, and it felt like this was maybe a reflection of that same kind of cultural issue.
1: Well, and I think that it, you know, I think that if you look at some of the the scandals around the testing, you know, the testing scandals that we've seen recently, and I think that there have been you know scandals in Philly, scandals in Georgia, scandals in D.C. Um, there, are, there are you know quite a few, and I think that they, those all seem to revolve around not just students teaching. But,
0: right, those are about adults
1: right, cheating. Right, those are about adults cheating and, and teachers cheating, administrators cheating, districts cheating. And again, I do think that that points to a, a, cult, a cultural shift, but also, again, that, that we're very caught up in having the right numbers, um, sort of numbers sort of the, the, uh, that appear to show growth or progress or, and, and not really uh, caring sort of how we get there or if if those numbers are accurate.
0: Right. I'm I'm thinking of the research. um, Dan Pink brings this up in uh, his book Drive that just shows that uh, when you compensate knowledge work in the same way that you would compensate piece work, you end up getting cheating. Yeah. That that it's a very bad way to motivate people. Okay, so uh, from there to... A labor union um, seemingly saying that they don't think it's fair to move learning online. Uh, of course, there's much more to that than the headline. But um, yeah. why is that actually a fair argument?
1: The, this is one of those. I mean, like, I, this is one of those things that sort of makes it hard when I say I'm just going to write a, a blog about education technology, and I don't want to get involved in politics, and I don't want to sort of. Um, Get distracted or not distracted, but sort of go off down sort of different sorts of tangents. But this is a This is one of those points where it it's, it's actually quite quite complex because I think in some ways, you know, we talk a lot about um, you know the opportunities that online learning, distance learning, for example, have can afford. You know, students can take classes. Um, students can take classes if they can't make it to campus if their schedule doesn't uh, work. Um, so it does open the door for, for students to be able to you know take, uh, take classes that wouldn't otherwise be able to, but then you know you look at the the sort of how is that changing how is that changing the work the labor of of the instructor, and so the University of California uh, AFT. American Federation of Teachers, the, the Lecturers Union, has sort of put its foot down and said that if the if the state university system tries to expand its online offerings, that it will use its collective bargaining power um, to, to stop it unless it, unless they feel as though it's sort of fair, you know, fair for its workers. Um, but I think that you know I think that again, it, it's how is teaching shifting when we mo- when we move it online? Teaching is a very different. Teaching an online course is a very d- different practice than um, an off than an offline classroom experience, um, and it's it's my, it's not necessarily a labor saving uh, a labor saving uh, thing for the for the instructor.
0: Well, I think the the sort of the hard hitting part of that story was the recognition that those lecturers are already not getting well compensated sometimes and aren't in great working conditions already.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's you know, I think that that too is this, um, the the reality of a lot of um, a a lot of the work that happens on colleges. Um, And I say this as someone who taught you know, who taught at the University of Oregon, taught just these sorts of introductory writing classes, the you know, freshman composition classes, and it's it's hard work, Um, you know, it's labor intensive work already. And moving that online, I think it's. It does cause a lot of, of fear, not, because, of, not that because teachers are Luddites, um, but because it, there, I think there's just concerns that an already exploitative uh, situation might, might become more so. Well,
0: I appreciated your raising the complexities in that story. Okay, so two New York Times stories to talk about. Um, and in both, it's standardized testing scores that are used to measure what's working and what's not with educational technology. So tell us about those.
1: Yeah, the, the New York Times has been running a, couple, a, um, a series of posts um, grading the digital school. And they've been looking at, um, looking at ways in which schools have been spending a lot of money on technology, hardware and software. And sort of the, the, the argument, um, um, both implicit and sort of overtly in these articles, is that, that it's just not worth it. Um, the money isn't worth it, in part because there aren't results, and the results, the art, the articles are arguing, are that test scores, again, back to test scores, test scores aren't rising. Um, and so I took a closer look at one of the one of the things that the um, that the, that the uh, Department of Ed has created, which is a What Works Clearinghouse, which is meant to sort of point to the good research to help schools decide which software they should. Which software they should buy, um, but again, it's it's this it's this very complicated and sort of political morass of sort of what counts as research, whose research, um, whose whose research gets done, um, you know, the, the research on major companies. I've looked for any single internet startup I could think of in the What Works Clearinghouse, and you know, nobody has done a a research uh, a deep deep dive research into does newton work or does Grockett work or do, do well do ebooks work um, and so it's it's uh, a lot of it is looking at these you know sort of test um, sort of older box model or software box uh, testing software
0: i think you also make the point that it's not just the the those aspects of what actually gets included but the reality that people don't use that resource very much in decision making right
1: <laughs> well that's i think that that's part that's the thing too i mean one of the requirements to have your research appear in this um in this clearinghouse is that it has to be research done within the last 20 years um so if you think about you know somebody who's who submitting research from well, 1991 um what would the what would the educational software package that they've done research be i mean 91 like hyper studio I, I don't know and so I think it's it doesn't feel like it's out-of-date it's not or the the site is sort of feels out-of-date to schools they don't see the site doesn't list how much uh, any of these software um, packages cost so it doesn't really give all of the information that schools need in order to make a, a good decision I mean you might see a um, a software package that has great you know great reviews according to the Department of Education but how do you weigh that if you don't actually know how much it's going to cost your your district to implement it
0: okay this next one's just too easy <laughs> Pierce, Pearson releases a free learning management system
1: yes and I think okay. that the photo, the photo <laughs> that I chose <laughs> the photo that I chose sort of says it all um, I chose, um, Admiral, Admiral Akbar um, uh, for, for his very famous, um, for his very famous line, it's a trap. Um, <laughs> and I, think, I think that that's, um, that Star Wars reference is really, yes, um, is sort of really in a nutshell, my take on, on this announcement. Um, so Pearson announced this week that it's, that it's going to make, uh, its new learning, um, uh, learning management system open class so, and note the adjectives here open class will be available for free um, and I, I just sort of am deeply skeptical about the open and the free um, uh, both pieces of those um, so I dive I dive a little deeply into what why why person doesn't need to charge for an LMS um, they want you to by their content, not their learning management system. Um, and really, I think that it's it's just so far from open. Uh,
0: uh, the the phrase that really stood out to me was, freer than Moodle. Freer
1: Freer, freer than, than
0: Moodle. Free. Okay, that hurts at so many levels. But <clears throat> this idea that the words open and free are being used in a very marketing sense without understanding the deep connotations of what freedom and open mean to those who've looked deeply at these issues.
1: Yes. I mean, and the other, the other one in the email announcement that they sent me was that it provides open access. And again, you know, when you talk about open access in education technology, that's a, that's a specific term to do with licensing or, you know, no li, you know, uh, openly licensed content, con, uh, content, things that are available uh, without these other strings attached to them. And so, yeah, I definitely see this as a marketing as a marketing ploy. And then they also touted this relationship with Google, which I immediately forwarded to my PR contact at Google and asked, you well, what the hell is going on with this? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, the, I was fascinated with this idea that they actually felt like the word open meant that it, anybody could use it. Mm-hmm. Rather than open, meaning it's open standards, it's open content. It's some.
1: Open, it's open at a
0: level that allows. Yeah, open source. How, that was fascinating to me. It did remind me of the degree to which uh, we have moved forward with a lot of these concepts: open source software, Web 2.0, to a place where um, you know five years ago when we first started meeting at ISTI about Web 2.0, it wasn't the conversation. Now that it is the conversation. It, it's so easy to see how large companies to, and I don't think this is a, um, I don't think they do it maliciously, but in order to seem like they're current, they begin to adopt the terminology without understanding the core concepts.
1: Well, and I, I would add to that too. Um, I've been really fascinated by watching the learning management system um, sort of industry uh, sort of change and watching schools, professors, students question the learning management system and having people think about maybe we need to sort of challenge and rethink what a learning management system does. Do we we need one? Um, And I hear people, you know, people say, let's focus instead on content. Now, um, by that, they don't mean let's focus on how we can buy digital curriculum from Pearson. I think they mean, how can we how can we help students um, share collaborate work together um, those sorts of things <laughs> but again it's sort of adopting adopting some of the some of the discussions that schools are having um, and then um, shifting it down a very different path so yeah it's a trap <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I have to say, this is our first show, and it's experimental, and I don't know how how we're going to feel about the length of time. But I but I will say that you're I really am enjoying listening to you talk about this. So I'm going to keep going. Okay. And, and if if people give us feedback that this is too long, well, we'll just have to shorten it up. Okay. So let's move to your roundup. Okay. And of course, you made some great disclaimer about not wanting to talk about politics and policies, but but you have several stories in here about politics and policy. which would you like to call out?
1: Um, I think that, was, well, oh man, let's let's call out actually um, the the move by the FCC. I'll sidestep, all sidestep side any of the legislative pieces that occurred this week, and there are some interesting ones. But I've been really interested to watch, in particular, our current FCC Chairman Julius Janikowski, has really been pushing forward um, the the FCC's role in helping expand broadband availability to. Uh, Throughout the country, and I think that this the the question of the digital divide isn't just a matter of sort of what hardware you have, but the fact that a lot of homes in this country, particularly in rural areas, um, don't have access to high-speed internet. uh, Homes and schools and libraries, and so he's you know he's really worked hard, I think, to sort of make sure that that's going to happen. He started another initiative this week to help bring uh, both nonprofits. The government and private industry together again to sort of help make sure that this that this moves forward. Um, and I think anytime you see some of these big name companies on board with these products, uh, with these projects, it's good to ask questions about sort of what is Best Buy, uh, what does Comcast gain from these endeavors? But I still think you know getting getting high speed internet into uh, piped into the homes um, in this country is is a huge challenge. And so I definitely appreciate you know him him pushing the conversation forward,
0: especially because on the international scales we end up looking so terrible with our broadband access.
1: We do. I mean, the, the you know our ability to have affordable, uh, you know, affordable uh, access is 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 really t- it's really um, it is it is embarrassing. And I think too of you know as we start to rethink. Particularly in the case of libraries, what so the role of some of these institutions will be um, in a in a, a technologically connected world? I think it's really important to have high speed internet at the library and have this recognition that literacy now means digital literacy and it means digital access. Um, so I think that this is these are these are in- interesting is- initiatives um, coming from the FCC.
0: I'll give a short plug. I did an interview today with David Lurcher about libraries becoming learning commons. Wonderful. And uh, we'll put the link in the, in the actual physical, the, the digital notes here to that interview. Okay, so I, I don't think we need to beat up on Pearson no. at, at any more length here. But, but clearly there's some concern about how they've used money to influence decisions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I think that the, the, the New York Times has, has written a couple of stories recently about Pearson. Uh, this particular one was about the Pearson's foundation. And again, I think, you know, technology, uh, the technology industry is very good about having these foundational philanthropic arms that do good. Um, and that also have some questionable practices, in this case, flying, um, you know, flying school district officials to exotic places, um, uh, sponsoring their trips um, around the world to talk about, uh, quote, digital education. So.
0: And Google makes some amends on accessibility.
1: Yeah, this is, you know, Google, you know, Google has pushed hard to get um, its Google apps into schools um, at the K-12 and higher ed level. And last year, the National Federation for the Blind pushed back and said that, you know, that, that there are a lot of issues with accessibility for the blind in terms of, in terms of the, Google, uh, interf- the Google apps interface. And I've watched a c- number of changes over the last few months coming out of Google, I think that they've taken this seriously, uh, whether seriously in terms of a legal threat or not. They're taking it seriously. And um, news this week that uh, that the National Federation of Blind was sort of dropping its complaint against Google. Um, so that's good.
0: Yeah, it does sound good. OK, so product launches. I'm going to give my award for the worst website name <laughs> to the Learning Resource Metadata Initiative. Although you probably thought it was going to be C U U S O O. Maybe we should give two awards.
1: <laughs> I think that either of them would. I think they're both um, both eligible this week. Indeed.
0: So, what happened of interest uh, with product launches?
1: Um. This week was actually uh, the, I mean the, I think the, the big product launch was the, was Pearson's, but I, um, I do I am actually interested in you know Lego as a as a company who I think many of us love deeply, and Lego does some interesting um, has a lot of interesting STEM work, so it's it's curious to see Lego sort of moving into the social space. So they're they're creating a a new site where people will be able to, you know, put their display what they've built and sort of have this model of crowdfunding, um, a way to sort of sell your designs, which I thought, I think if, you know, if my brother and I, if this had happened when we were eight and 10, I mean, we would be, we'd be millionaires. we built such amazing things. So I, I like that one.
0: Fun. Well, what about this video game Portal?
1: Um, Portal is a, I highly recommend Portal. It's a, um, it's a, there have been a number of video games that have been released recently that, you know, they don't fall under the sort of educational software, but people have noticed there are lots of interesting lessons that can be drawn from them. And Portal is one that physics teachers in particular have found have found pretty interesting. And Valve, the company behind Portal, says that it, you know, it wants to help sort of support that. It has a website that I've linked to that sort of offers lessons and thinking about how to incorporate... Um, portal in your um, in your teaching, um, but then it also wants to support building educational games. And the educational games sometimes make me shudder uh, because they're either terribly boring or terribly non-educational. So I'm excited to see what Valve will do because I think it sort of nailed it with that right balance of a game that is really fun and engaging um, that isn't sort of overtly you know lesson two, you know l- l- sort of lesson oriented. In that sort of way.
0: So I love creative comments, but I'm not really sure I understand what LMRI is going to do.
1: Yeah, I have to admit that this was one of those announcements that, when when they first announced that they were sort of joining forces to work on this, that I was deeply suspicious over as well. Um, I think it's a it's an initiative to help sort of mark up, sort of add metadata to educational um, content. To make sure that, in their words, so that so that things are easy to sort of publish and discover, um, but and although I must say, as someone with a sort of a, a, a background in archiving, I think I I love metadata, and I think the idea of us doing a better job with metadata is something we should always strive for. I'm not really sure either what the what the other what the other plans f- for this initiative are.
0: Well, I guess I feel like that. Uh... That my understanding is limited, but if it does make educational information more discoverable and and easier to publish for that reason, that that makes some sense.
1: I think too. The I mean, the other piece of this is to make sure that it's really easy for people to find the content that's licensed. I mean, I think that hope. I really hope that that's what Creative Commons will bring to this discussion, is um, a better understanding of what it means when you license, um, when you choose to license uh, license your things. And I think a lot of schools are really. Um, looking seriously at um, openly licensed content, uh, not just because, you know, the, the price is right, but um, because I think it, the, the ability to share and remix uh, content is one of these, you know, sort of comes along with digital media and digital technology. And so hopefully it'll help sort of leverage um, some of these uh, share, share-like uh, remix attribution things that will make it easier for people to, um, to sort of do exciting things with with public with what's published.
0: Okay, so what updates or upgrades do we need to pay attention to?
1: Um, well, I think one of the ones that um, is really interesting to me is um, it's one of my favorite uh, educational companies is LearnBoost, and the reason that I like them is that not only is it a is a great, nice looking, easy to use product, but it's all open source and it's. Um, their, their engineering team are actually some of, are um, building some of the cool technologies that other internet companies are using. In fact, LearnBoost, I think it has nine employees, and they have more more followers on GitHub, which is an open source repository for, for code. LearnBoost has more followers than any other educational company, and I think it's right behind Facebook and Yahoo in terms of the in terms of people who follow and reuse their code, so this is a powerhouse company technologically. Who've built a really great product, and they're definitely one to watch. Um, I, I, um, I actually haven't included it in the, the content that I shared with you, but they've been op- they've they've created a tool to help them crowdsource the translation of their website, um, so that um, people using it all over the world could sort of work through and help translate LearnBoost into other languages. Last week. And of course, then they open sourced the tool. Last week, they translated Learn Boost into Spanish, thanks to their users. Today, they, um, today they've announced French, Dutch, Portuguese, and I believe Russian. Um, and so this is, a, this is just an interesting company that's doing a lot of good um, doing a lot of good technologically behind the scenes, which is something I think we need to ask for EdTech to be good tech.
0: Okay, so spending a lot of time on Facebook decreases academic performance. <laughs> Big Duh. shock. Duh. But actually, it doesn't decrease academic performance as much as you might think. But maybe a little bit of a shock.
1: Well, this, you know, uh, Ray Junko has been doing some really interesting work here, looking at all sorts of ways in which, um, you know ways in which sort of students really are using Facebook um, and how it does impact, how it does and and doesn't impact their studies. I think it's one of those sort of um, anytime you mention Facebook and students and teachers there tends to be these sort of shocking headlines um, and he's really taking the time to to look very closely and I believe this study was the largest study done so far on um, on students use use of Facebook. I think almost 2,000 students participated so this is this is good data and interesting data but yeah not not it's not this hugely detrimental um, thing I mean again if you're spending you know spending more than 106 minutes per day on Facebook which is the average the average amount of time that students spend on Facebook then you will see some slight drop in your GPA but um, I I think you'll be okay
0: yeah but it was slight I was fascinated. Uh, I was also fascinated to learn that ninety one percent of kids aged two to seventeen play games
1: <laughs> yeah and I, th- I what i was shocked by was this the biggest the biggest this was a study by the NT- MPD group and that the biggest growth among gamers um was in the two to five age range and so these are these are you know these are toddlers that were handing i'm i'm gonna guess I, i'd have to look more detail at the at the study but I guess I'm guessing that we're handing them we're handing them mobile devices or definitely sitting them down in front of computers and they're playing video games
0: isn't that funny you know I I talked to a guy the other day whose uh, company is developing an app so that when you hand that device to your child it can kinda protect your core pieces like your email and the like where they can still use the device but you don't have to worry they're gonna send an email to your boss
1: that's actually, I think that that's one of these. Again, that's one of the things that's sort of interesting to think about how these consumer, you know, consumer devices are going to change, uh, you know, change schools and change how we learn. Um, my boyfriend has a 11 year old daughter, and whenever she's played on his iPhone, he always picks it back up from her, and you know, he has sort of 30 new games, and you know, all of his, you know, all of his, you know, voice or all of the ringtones have been changed and things like that. So. I think kids are pretty savvy. What they know, they're doing with their parents' uh, devices.
0: Okay, so uh, e-book checkouts are up two hundred percent from last year. But what's the starting figure? I mean, how how, how much is this really happening?
1: Well, um, I think that I think that it's happening more and more. And of course, earlier this fall, OverDrive, which is um, one of the main suppliers of digital content to schools and libraries um, they of course um, allowed for ebooks to be checked out via Kindles and I think that partially because of the you know the popularity of the Kindle, not just the, the hardware but the Kindle app on um, on the iOS and Android devices, I think that that's really sort of the, the, the shifting point for a lot of library patrons to start thinking about, you know, checking books out of, of their local public library on their on their devices. I haven't yet. Um, I haven't tried it yet.
0: I keep wondering how legal it is that I allow my daughter to share my Kindle account. But it's just delightful that we can actually both read the same book at the same time.
1: See, and that's the frustrating thing that I find is that I. Well, I mean, one of the one of the grave concerns I have about, about digital content is this DRM and the inability to share. I've just finished reading um, all five novels by George R.R. R. Martin and his Game of Thrones, which has taken me far too long to do. Um, but I can't share them with anyone in my family. Whereas if I, you know, if I had the paperback, I would definitely ship them off to my little brother who loves that sort of thing. But now I, I can't. I think that's a loss. I think that's a, a loss for us.
0: I know I'm not in the norm because the, st- the statistics all prove that I am not. But I find that I'm buying both the electronic and the physical copy of books. They've gotten me. They've hooked me oh. <clears throat> because I appreciate the value of both. So I'll end up oftentimes buying both the physical and the electronic.
1: That's interesting. I'm definitely buying a lot more books. Uh, I, and I say that as a pretty avid book buyer and book reader, but I'm definitely buying a lot more books. So they've got me there too, just not not the double whammy like you.
0: Yes, I, th- I think we're going to see a really dramatic shift when the book becomes a platform for conversation. When, like with Google+, I can actually have circles of friends and I can, in my book, I can make a comment or I can drill down on something that the book raises as an issue and share that easily. Uh, I keep, again, I keep feeling like the, the technology is there. It's probably just the licensing rights and some of these other aspects that are keeping us from that place where the book really dramatically shifts.
1: Yeah, there are a couple of—I mean, there are a couple of interesting startups that are working in that space too. One of them is called Highlighter, and I've covered them a couple of times on my blog. Um, They—they—they're trying to sort of recreate that precisely that idea of sort of mar- margin notes, um, and make margin no- notes social, um, and they're really aiming at the academic market as well, so that teachers or professors um, can uh, can add can add their to- this highlighter tool to like their websites and their course assignments pdfs and so on and so that students can actually participate in a sort of a study group um right within the the pages of the reading assignment which i think is is great
0: yeah should be should be amazing okay so uh you've uh, in your weekly roundup you have some contents uh, sorry contests, classes and conferences, anything worth letting people know or can they just look up on the on the actual roundup?
1: They can probably just look at those ones themselves, yeah.
0: There was one here I'm trying to remember that really grabbed my eye, but I'm missing it now. Oh, I know what it was. It was some of the dollar amounts here.
1: Oh, right. right?
0: Yes. There's some big money going around here.
1: There is... Big money indeed. This was a week where there were um, quite a few technology, ed-, ed tech or ed tech startups sort of announced that they'd raised a f- uh, round of funding, um, which is funny because um, I think earlier in the week, the Wall Street Journal wrote a story that, that sort of the cash crunch had hit. Silicon Valley and no one was going to be able to raise money and in fact my mom emailed me that story saying oh no are you gonna still have a job <laughs> if, if technology startups can't raise money um, I, that's, I guess that's the sort of um, emails that mothers are allowed to do um, but, but the one that struck me as really interesting was Newton um, raising 33 million dollars which it claims is the highest um, the highest amount of venture capital raised by an education startup ever
0: Amazing. Okay. Well, I think we've actually consumed almost an hour. I
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so much for our 15 minutes. Of-
0: this, those of you who listened to this first podcast, <clears throat> let us know, was it worth the hour or, or do we need to shorten it up? I will tell you, I really enjoyed it. This is Audrey, great. I'm just delighted that you're doing this and, um, and and felt like I learned a lot, both in reading your blog posts in and having the conversation with you your blog post your blogs are at hackeducation.com yes Uh, mine are at stevehargedon.com and uh, all this content will appear at both as well as a link to uh, this podcast and future ones so thanks so much for spending an hour with us and we'll see how you feel about it take care everybody bye now
1: thank you great thanks